One reason I wanted to call it the politics of catastrophe is that there is, a, I think, a false dichotomy between natural and man-made disasters that people have in their heads. And so they think of a, a pandemic as a natural disaster, uh, but a war as a man-made disaster. And the book argues, taking its cue from Amartya Sen's work on famines, that that dichotomy is a false one and that disastrous events, while they may have natural points of origin, are only as disastrous as we make them. Welcome, everyone, to another exciting episode of the Into the Impossible podcast with your fearful host. I used to call myself that during this time of former time of pandemic podcasting, although today we're talking about the pandemic, at least for part of the interview with Neil Ferguson, a distinguished scholar at the Hoover Institution, a senior fellow, a former professor, chair professor at Harvard University. And Neil and I got into a great deal of fun in this episode, talking about existential risk, talking about pandemics, plagues, space shuttle disasters, Titanic sinking, the human mind, innumeracy, and even uh, some controversial things like his involvement with a new university called the University of Austin, Texas, which he's one of the founding faculty members thereof. We talked about his book primarily called Doom, although we also talked about his former uh, project called The Ascent of Money, which was a phenomenal um, discussion of the role of financial instruments throughout human history as a financial economist. Uh, and how he would update it in the Bitcoin era. We actually got into Bitcoins and aliens. The only thing we didn't cover is the simulation hypothesis. That would be too on the nose. Uh, but we talked about other types of disasters. And I do think uh, his blend of erudition of scholarship is a welcome compliment to the scientist that I normally speak to. He's not a scientist, although his relatives, his mother and his sister, I think are both physicists. So he could be an honorary physicist. Uh, and uh, it was really quite a delight to talk to him. I had uh, so much fun. I didn't think talking about the doom of humanity, of plagues, of famines, of destruction could be so delightful and fun, but it was. Um, so I want to implore you to, uh, to enjoy this episode and if you do, please do leave a review on iTunes or Audible um, or leave a rating anywhere you get uh, you get your podcast. You can leave ratings nowadays. And in some places like Apple Podcasts and Audible, you can leave written reviews. So do that. And you could be like uh, a very recent uh, review left by Nuzzy. I always learn something new and interesting here, refreshing and insightful. Thank you, Nuzzy, so much. Uh, one of the best podcasts from Pavi1324. Listening to learning retains your attention in each episode from start to finish. I think it's wonderful. I love hearing that. Uh, and it keeps me going. I don't ask for much other than to um, make sure you subscribe to my newsletter, briankeating.com slash list, and my YouTube channel, Dr. Brian Keating. And now I bid you adieu into this wonderful uh, conversation with a renowned scholar, Neil Ferguson of Hoover Institution, Stanford University, and soon University of Texas, Austin. Enjoy and let me know what you thought of the episode. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. So it's a great pleasure to be uh, welcoming today a renowned scholar, a thinker, uh, really one of my favorite intellectuals, I think it's safe to call, you know, a public intellectual of the first and highest order. It's a great pleasure to have you here. You're joining us from uh, Stanford. Is that correct, sir? That is right, uh, Brian. I'm uh, on a rather sleepy campus where uh, relatively few people are around, no students as yet. <laughs> well, I have a, sort of a mixed history with, with Stanford. It almost caused my doom. 
because I was fired. The only time I've ever been fired in my life was from Stanford University. We're not going to talk about that, though. It led to me talking to you in some ways, though, so it couldn't have been all bad. And uh, I'll, I'll save that for another day. But, but you know, I want to start by asking you, first and foremost, uh, to do that which you're never supposed to do. Uh, but I always say, what else can you do? but judge a book by its cover. And we're here celebrating uh, the paperback release of this really phenomenal book that I read, but I, I really enjoyed listening to because you narrated it, which is which is wonderful. And, and it's called Doom. It's got a very a cheerful title. So if you wouldn't mind showing the book, The Politics of Catastrophe, I feel like you're underselling it a little bit. It's so rich with science, with history, with irreverent wit, with humor. I mean, for a book about doom, it was really a pleasure to read. What is the meaning of the title and the cover illustration, my friend? Well, I think you should judge a book by its cover, actually. I spend a lot of time thinking about covers, but this one was probably a mistake. Uh, so the idea of the book was uh, to write a general history of disaster, which didn't really exist. All disasters, man-made and natural, all in one place. And I, you know, I say to people when I talk about this book, if you can think of a disaster that's not in this book, I'll give you a free book. And the idea of the, the book jacket was that I just loved the image of this guy sinking a putt with the raging wildfire behind him. Uh, it was taken a few years ago uh, in Oregon, I think. And I, I persuaded my American publishers to go with that uh, as, as, as an image. And it, it also was supposed to signal it's not a book about COVID, although COVID is is in it. It's a book about disasters generally. But I think it was probably a mistake because it doesn't really say that it's a history book. And uh, and so the paperback looks radically different. Uh, and the paperback is, I think, a much better uh, jacket. And I have to give credit to my German publishers, uh, DVA, who said, this is a history book. It needs to look like a history book. Uh, the book, I think, uh, isn't the depressing read that its title might imply. I think I might have wanted to write a bestseller uh, in the sort of Malcolm Gladwell range. I'd have called it fun, uh, uh, the politics of partying or something like that. And that would have been a great read for, for the post-pandemic American public. But it, it's a book about disaster and our relationship to it. And because I'm from Glasgow, the west of Scotland, uh, the kind of gallows humor is is part of how I relate to disaster. And so it's not, in fact, a, a dismal read. I hope in places it's in a maybe macabre way quite quite fun. But I wanted to get at our, our strange relationship to disaster. And the advent of COVID gave, gave it a perfect peg. Yeah. Yeah, and it truly is. I mean, the one, uh, you know, just in all seriousness, that the, the only thing I would take issue is, is it's the subtitles, the politics. But really, you make a very convincing case that, you know, politics is only partially the blame. And I wonder if that was, uh, you know, born of the moment in which it was written. As I understand it, you were in Montana, squirreled away with your lovely family and uh, writing it in, in amidst the, you know, feigning, you know, fend a, a decadal uh, moments of 2020 right after the election or around the election. COVID was still in the news, no vaccine on, on the horizon. Um, and so politics obviously was in the news uh, when you're writing it. But when it came out, um, you know, I wonder if that really summarizes or does justice to the full breadth and scope. I mean, you take a panoramic view of it long before the politics of the state 
really made made an impact. So maybe you can capitulate a little bit to the readers that might not be familiar with it yet, although hopefully they'll get the book in all its forms. Um, you know, what is the role of politics? How much can man really do or politicians really do to avert, presage, or predict, or remedy a, a, a doom disaster type scenario? Well, less than the public and the media think. I think that's part of the reason I gave it that subtitle. One reason I wanted to call it the politics of catastrophe is that there is, a, I think, a false dichotomy between natural and man-made disasters that people have in their heads. And so they think of a, a pandemic as a natural disaster, uh, but a war as a man-made disaster. And the book argues, taking its cue from Amartya Sen's work on famines, that that dichotomy is a false one and that disastrous events, while they may have natural points of origin, are only as disastrous as we make them. Uh, so let's take the example of the pandemic. Whether you subscribe to the lab leak hypothesis or not doesn't really matter. Even if the, the new virus uh, was a natural zoonotic uh, mutation, uh, the way that the Chinese authorities handled the outbreak in Wuhan, uh, suppressing information about it and essentially lying about human-to-human uh, -human transmission, meant that it was a pandemic. It could have been contained, and perhaps in a society with greater freedom, uh, it would have been contained. But right from its origins, you can't understand COVID without the politics of the Chinese Communist Party. And then you ask the question, well, why does this virus have such different impacts on different countries? Why is there almost no excess mortality in Taiwan, which is right next door to the People's Republic, and very high mortality in, say, the United States, and even higher mortality relatively in some Latin American countries? That, that can't be explained in, in terms of, I don't think, in, in biological terms. It's the same virus, basically. Uh, and there really aren't big human genetic differences explaining the, the outcomes. The outcomes have to do with very great variation in public health policy. And one of the arguments that was very live in 2020 when I was writing the book was that it was all Donald Trump's fault in the United States. Mm -hmm. uh, Jim Fallows wrote a piece for The Atlantic saying it's pilot error, that, that if the pilot's uh, incompetent, the plane crashes. And I really thought that couldn't be right. And so part of the motivation towards the end of the book is to say it's highly unlikely that one can attribute that much agency, that much importance to the president of the United States. It's much more plausible that this is a failure of, of the Centers for Disease Control uh, or the Department of Health and Human Services. It's a failure of the public health bureaucracy, just as success in Taiwan was success on the part of the bureaucracy. This is a long-winded way of saying that most disasters have a kind of man-made or political character. Even a volcanic eruption is not an entirely natural disaster if you've chosen to build a bloody great city right at the foot of the volcano, and then you rebuild it after the eruption as if there's not going to be another one at some future date. So that's that's part of the, the thinking there. I'm not a scientist, but of course, a lot of science is involved in a book like this. Yeah. What I can write about credibly is the ways in which human decision making fails to manage the risk or the uncertainty around mutations of viruses or geological events. 
Yeah, and actually that was one of the more depressing aspects of it to me was um, given the amount, uh, the scope, the budget, the the ascription of agency. I, I remember January 15th, 2020, I was at a Shabbat dinner with some friends and I had just been invited to visit a cosmology experiment in, uh, of all places, Tibet in that coming April. And my friend uh, said, well, you better think a little bit, you know, about that because there's this, you know, new disease called COVID. I'd heard a little bit about it. And he said, yeah, you know, the Chinese, they're, they're pretty amazing. You know, they built a hospital in eight days that, you know, can, uh, can double as a prison and, and it can fit, you know, 8,000 people. And, and I was like, oh, that's kind of interesting. And, and then, you know, two months later, of course, all hell breaks loose, including here in America. And I was thinking if my friend, you know, some uh, Yenta at, at the Shabbat dinner can know this when we have, you know, the billion dollar three letter agencies of all countries. I mean, is this a failure of, you know, truly of just the bloating, the size of God? I mean, how could the NSA, the CIA, the FBI, you know, the uh, NHS, whatever in, in, in England, they all failed with trillions of dollars of budget. Are these things just intrinsically? I mean, it's not an asteroid impact. It's not, you know, it's it's a virus that we had spy satellites. We could have, if my friend knew, in other words, they were building a hospital, yeah. why didn't we have enough masks? I mean, yeah. what do you attribute, what can we attribute that to? Well, the, the, the simple answer is it wasn't all because the president was a populist with uh, a, a, an impulse control problem. The failure is clearly much further down the chain of, of command within the public health bureaucracy. And that's a recurrent theme of the book, that the point of failure is not always at the top, and it actually quite seldom is right at the top. I got that from Richard Feynman. Yeah, I was uh, going to say the Challenger disaster. You yeah. really, um, we'll, we'll get to Richard Feynman at the end of this conversation. I, I'd sort of trail that for your listeners who probably are Feynman fans. That's some, right. We're going to get some to measure. That. But I, I got as an epiphany Feynman's insight into the Challenger as really not being uh, attributable to Ronald Reagan. It was attributable to the NASA bureaucracy and one yeah. person in particular. But in the case of COVID, CDC clearly did much worse than early CDC in, say, 1957-58, when there was a, a pretty serious influenza pandemic, despite being now a much larger organization with a much larger budget. Uh, and and you, you can delve into the failures in the UK in the same way, and that, that increasingly is happening. I don't think we'll ever have a full public inquiry into the failure of the US public health bureaucracy of the sort that we probably need. I mean, we need a sort of 9-11 commission to understand why the, the guy whose job it was to be the undersecretary for preparedness admitted in 2018 that the pandemic preparedness plan wouldn't work and why nothing was done about that. We, we really need to know more about that. Uh, but my read based on public publicly available information in 2020 was that uh, key parts of the public health bureaucracy simply screwed up. And the most obvious example is testing. Why did the Taiwanese control the outbreak at the beginning when the population was at its most vulnerable? Because they very quickly got to a point where they could test on, on, on a large scale. Mm. And we utterly failed to do that. In fact, CDC prevented testing being available by insisting that they monopolize it, shutting down private initiative. And that meant that 
I think I probably had COVID at the beginning because I had been in, in Asia right at the beginning of January. I was sick as a dog in late January and February, but I couldn't get a test, even on the Stanford campus, which you would have thought of as a pretty cutting edge place for medical science. And that was just one of multiple failures. I think the bureaucracy knew as surely as their financial counterparts in 2007, that they were not ready for a crisis. Uh, and yet they sat with their meaningless 36 page pandemic preparedness plan and waited for the disaster to strike. And I think kind of hoping that it wouldn't strike on their watch. That That's my broad take. And I think this is a generally relevant point about disaster, whether you're talking about the Challenger or the Titanic or for that matter, World War One, any disaster, we're very inclined to say, blame it on the president, blame it on the king, blame it on the emperor. That's a sort of powerful human impulse. Uh, and, and in fact, people at the top of hierarchies of power quite want us to attribute power to them. Uh, but it's the same point Tolstoy makes about Napoleon in War and Peace. He thinks he's really important. He thinks he's in charge, but you can't really explain what's going on in and around 1812 purely in terms of his decisions and his orders. So in the same way, a disaster really tends to be magnified by points further down the chain of command. And that, that search for the point of failure was what motivated me to call it the politics of catastrophe, using the term politics quite broadly. Yeah, and I think you make this very um, distinct and, and accurate distinction between you know the politics, or maybe the 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 human you know, comprehension of power law type effects, and normal distribution or Gaussian distributions. Uh, I'm tempted because you're a Scotsman to call them Maxwell Boltzmann distributions in honor of the great James yes. Clerk Maxwell, yes. uh, who died too soon. And maybe we'll talk about him when I, I want to talk about uh, social media, which you're quite adept at. Um, uh, and uh, but you know there are in single individuals who change history. Lee Harvey Oswald. Uh, Hitler, uh, and then there are collective things that you know it takes whole societies, uh, Holdemar, you know, genocides, and and so forth. They're you know partially collectivist and partially individualist. I wonder if that's you know kind of the numeracy as as the mathematician Pallas has called it. You know, the failure of the human brain to really comprehend what is a power law, what is a normal distribution, and to to falsely ascribe things in the past to witchcraft and and spirits, and now we ascribe everything to science. And, and of course, that, that was one of the major, you know, kind of thrust of your earlier work, especially, um, you know, with your so-called six killer apps. And maybe we can, we can talk a little bit about that. Do, has science, you know, uh, really lived up to the hope of its, uh, you know, what it portended to be? And when you called it a killer app, the scientific method and medicine, those were two of the three of the six killer apps that you spoke about. Um, how have they fared during this pandemic? And, and more broadly speaking, are we too reliant on them, as, as Arthur C. Clarke said, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic, or are we not reliant enough and we're innumerate, as Palos might say? Well, this is a big preoccupation uh, for the Ferguson family. I come from a scientific family. Uh, my mother's a physicist, and so is my sister. Uh, my father was a physician. I'm the black sheep of the family. <laughs> I went into history, history. which is, uh, <laughs> I was reading the other day, has much lower IQ students. I wish I'd known that back in, uh, in 1980 when I was applying to Oxford. Well, I think the, the big takeaway here is that we've made extraordinary advances in our, our scientific understanding as, as a species. There's just 
no contest, the medieval peasant, even the medieval monarch, was clueless in the face of the Black Death mm. by comparison with us. And yet, and yet, despite these enormous advances, we fared quite poorly in the face of a not very deadly virus by historic standards. I mean, this definitely wasn't uh, anything that could compare with the uh, with the, the pneumonic and bubonic plague of the 14th century. And I've been struggling to try to work that problem out. There's a tendency in, let's call them populist circles, to grumble uh, that somehow the scientists failed. But that's not right. I was really impressed by the way scientists as a global community responded to the challenge presented by the new SARS-CoV-2 virus and, and the new disease. In fact, part of what got me through 2020 was drinking from a fire hose of scientific publication in too many disciplines to list, in which an enormous number of, of people struggled collectively to understand the nature of the challenge. That was definitely not the point of failure. And of course, you had, uh, within an amazingly short space of time, the huge success of, of vac vaccines with higher than 90% efficacy in the phase three trials, Th things that happened after I'd finished writing the book, but which I kind of felt would happen. Mm -hmm. I had a good feeling about where those va vaccines would come out. So where did things go wrong? Not, I think, uh, amongst scientists. There were failures amongst public health officials and scientists who were uh, playing a public public role as advisors. And I think that happened on both sides of the Atlantic. Uh, and, and the reason it happened, I think, was that the incentives meaningfully change when you move from engaging in science as a vacation, seeking to arrive at truth through experimental methods, and doing policy. And, and, and you could illustrate this with the case of my near namesake, Neil Ferguson, uh, the epidemiologist at Imperial College, whose March 2020 paper set the scene for lockdown policies on both sides of the Atlantic. And what, what's interesting about the case of, of Neil Ferguson is that there were, I thought, obvious problems with the paper. And I'm not even uh, a trained scientist in the assumptions it made about the infection fatality rate, in the assumptions it made about what measures would be necessary to contain spread, in his readiness to think that the Chinese had got it right with draconian lockdowns, and I could go on and on. But that paper uh, was seized upon uh, by public health bureaucracies that were panicking and by politicians who were suddenly panicking. And it led to a series of extremely costly policy errors. The biggest flaw was that he and other epidemiologists simply ignored the economic consequences and I'd say broader social consequences of lockdowns as a problem, as if it really wasn't their concern. And as a result, they massively understated the costs of the policy that they were recommending. And I think they overstated the benefits. Mm. So it wasn't, it wasn't so much that bad science was being done, though I think the model that Ferguson used probably was deeply flawed. It was more that it, it then became very quickly politicized and led to bad policy choices in which the trade-offs, and that's the central problem of any policy decision-making process, the trade-offs were just completely bungled. Yeah. 
not being able to really distinguish, as you make clear in the book, you know, the difference between risk and uncertainty. Um, we in the scientific, you know, experimental uh, uh, scientific community, we're building instruments in foreign countries, in my case, in Chile with my collaboration. And we have these risk registers and they have some expected, you know, value of, of impact and dollars and, and personnel and so forth. And you have to be quite clinical about it. But then, you know, I'll turn around, I'll see some of the same students that work in my lab, you know, uh, on their skateboards here in Southern California, you know, uh, with a mask on, you know, no helmet and with a cell phone, you know, in front of their face as they're barreling down the main, you know, quad. And, and I just feel like there's, in trend, and these are highly educated, uh, you know, scientifically literate individuals. Um, right. I wonder if that's, if it's just, you know, the, the human nature that we are yes. just, uh, we, we are we are incapable of grasping, as I said, you know, before, and you point out in the book, the power law versus the normal curve. I mean, is this just, I mean, we obviously have to do something to to try to counter it, but but I think weighing the true cost-benefit analysis is not something that we're particularly adept at doing. I, I know, for example, I didn't have global pandemic on my risk register, you know, in 2019. Uh, I don't know too many people that did. Um, but how do we how do we balance that need for freedom? The we're not wearing a helmet, you know, on a skateboard versus the you know you must wear a mask and you must get tested. How do we balance that in a Western you know weird so called weird country like uh, the U.S.? Well, it would help if we taught kids about probability uh, and risk at school, but we don't. Mm -hmm. uh, and in fact, we make no attempt at, uh, to to teach our young future citizens about risk management in any domain, yeah. from personal safety to personal finance. We, we really allow people to go through our educational system without getting them to think in a probabilistic way about risk and uncertainty. I think that's the first mistake that we make. Of course, by our nature, we, we're evolved apes. Uh, we, we have a set of, of, of cognitive skills that are quite well suited to to hostile environments. And so we can sometimes do the right thing instinctively and impulsively. But in the modern uh, environment of a post-industrial society, a lot of the things that we were evolved to be good at aren't really that useful. Uh, and I think your your example of the, the student on the skateboard with the cell phone and the mask on, which of course there were many people in the same, playing the same part on the Stanford campus, uh, cycling around the campus with masks on. Um, I, I think that illustrates uh, our, our fatally flawed nature uh, as a species. And part of the reason for writing Doom was to get myself to think in a more rational way about my predicament. How long am I likely to live at the age of 58 with my background? It's not that comfortable to think about life expectancy, especially when you're right. 58 and from Glasgow, but you kind of got to do it. We've had a lot of conversation about this in our household recently since the attack on Salman Rushdie, yeah. uh, which was uh, not that long ago. Uh, my wife, Ayan Hirsi Ali, has also received multiple death threats and fatwas over the years for her work on uh, Islamic extremism. And uh, when the news came through that Salman had been attacked in that horrible fashion, I could see Ayan very worried, deeply anxious, reverting to a state of, of fearfulness that I remember from, from years ago. And I had to sit down and say, look, 
uh, the the risk never went away, not for Salman Rushdie, not for you. It, it is a risk, but we seek to manage it. But the risk to me of cancer is probably a bit bigger. Yeah. Uh, my friend, Andrew Jane, just died at 59 of, of cancer. And the risk to our boys of being hit by a car because they're not that used to traffic is higher uh, than, than either of these risks. And we should worry much more about that uh, than we do. And so... Part of the reason for writing the book Doom is to expose the fact that for all kinds of strange reasons, we have a cognitive difficulty when it comes to thinking about risk and uncertainty. We love to fixate on the wrong things. Uh, and, and we like the idea of cataclysmic disaster. We love to watch movies about that or read books about that. Uh, th there's always a kind of market for the movie Contagion, in fact, people were watching that movie during the early stages of COVID, which oh, I, yeah. think, I think a lot of journalists were getting some of their ideas about uh, what yeah. they call fomite and yeah. all the stuff that turned out to be nonsense. It's all in that movie. And I, I yeah, I don't think they did the scientific research. <laughs> the end but, of the world is fascinating. It is. Medium-sized disasters of the sort we're quite likely to encounter, kind of boring. And the statistics of our risk at any given stage of life, which are widely available, uh, just people don't really, they don't internalize them. Even if you kind of show them, and I used to show my students these risks when talking back in the post 9-11 period about terrorism, I'd kind of try to get them to think about this. It's not something that comes naturally to us. No. And that was what motivated me to write the book, partly to explore my own relationship to mortality and risk. The final point I'll make is that we don't like how big the domain of uncertainty is. And this is a point others have made, Nassim Taleb made it ages ago in the Black Swan. We really want much more to be calculable risk and much less to be incalculable uncertainty than is in fact the case. And power laws are helpful in this respect, especially if you live in California, because you know there's going to be some bloody great earthquake at some point, but you don't know when and you don't know how big. And there's just no way of, of getting a handle on that, except that it can happen. Right. That's as far as we can really go. Uh, and so, so many things inhabit that domain, including, it turns out, wars. Uh, the, the, the things that historians are interested in, which are the big disastrous events, because they occupy this realm of uncertainty, they're governed by parallels or they're randomly distributed in the case of wars. It just seems to me that's such a fundamental point about history that it should be central to what we as historians do rather than a sort of afterthought if it appears at all. Right. Yeah, and just paying attention as you list, you know, you keep um, mentioning, you know, where do these different pandemics, disasters fall in terms of the spectrum of distribution of events that claimed even a half a percent of human life. And I'm not, you know, obviously uh, every human life is precious. We, we, we don't have to get into that debate. But, but I remember thinking, you know, throughout this book that there's kind of this commonality and, and you end the book with, I don't, I don't think it's much of a spoiler, but you end the book with, um, I forget the author, the Journal of the Plague Year. Uh, uh, the quote, yes. And the quote, you know, being basically like 100,000 died in London in 65, but I'm still alive. And I, I found myself wondering, you know, you, as you just mentioned, with your family, your children, your wife, um, you know, how, how do we balance this kind of, it seems to me that quote, the plague year quote, is along the lines of, you know, Ernest Becker's denial of death, you know, that yeah. there's sort of a coping mechanism that human beings have to, 
put off, you know, the thoughts of our eventual, we know we're going to die. In fact, I think that's what homo sapien means. It means we are the only creature that knows that our existence is more, is finite. And yet, and yet we, we want to balance that with, uh, you know, the memento mori with the denial of death. So how do you personally, you know, how do you, how do you strike that balance between the precious that you've described yourself in your earlier years in your first marriage as a, as a workaholic? Um, now you've got these young children that you treasure your your wife um that you that you're so deeply committed to how do you balance that personally the 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 desire to have all this output um but also to spend time with your kids you're not going to get that back how do you balance the memento mori with the with the denial of death i guess that's the succinct way well the first point i'll make is that growing up i was born in 1964 uh with my grandfather's uh having served in the world wars I was aware in a way that I suspect most Californian kids today aren't aware of the, the proximity of death, that it was luck that had got my grandfathers through. And the first book that I, I published had to do with the First World War. There's a song that the soldiers sang, and I quoted in Doom, in the trenches on the eve of the Battle of the Somme, and it's a parody of a Salvation Army hymn. The bells of hell go ting-a-ling-a-ling for you, but not for me. <laughs> and that song captures how a late teens, early 20s British man coped with the prospect of an incredibly risky attack on the German lines in, in 1916. Uh, oh, death, where is thy sting-a-ling-a-ling? Oh, grave thy victory. They laughed at, in the face of imminent death. I was haunted by that as a, as a boy. And I never really ceased to be aware of that, the proximity of death, but the need to laugh at it. Uh, I remember reading Hamlet as a teenager at school and realizing that that is a play in which a man come, comes to terms with mortality. That's really the point of the play. Then I walk into the Fitzwilliam Museum in Cambridge. I'm in my mid-twenties. I, I think I had, uh, I had my first academic job in Cambridge. And there in the Fitzwilliam Museum is a, is a painting uh, by an Italian artist, Salvatore uh, Rosa, uh, depicting the the death of most of his family in an outbreak of plague in, in Naples in the mid-17th century. And there is an inscription on the painting which sums up the human condition more succinctly than anything I've ever seen. Uh, and it is, uh, Conceptio culpa, nasci pena, labor vita, necesse mori. Conception is sin, birth is pain, life is work, and death is inevitable. And I remember seeing that and thinking, that's it. That sums it all up. And now we must try to live as best we can as if it's more than that. Mm. And so I think as with the soldiers in the trenches, my philosophy has been be aware of the finite nature of life. Be aware that it could be cut off cruelly. Uh, and in with that awareness, in your mind, in the back of your mind, but try to achieve as much as you possibly can. Now, I hope that I, I'm selfless at least some of the time. 
I know that I've been motivated by an intellectual ambition from a very early age to try to understand the world better. That's what sent me down the path of history because what seemed to me elusive about the world as I was growing up was, was not the kind of thing my, my mother and sister were interested in. It felt to me as if the movements of heavenly bodies or of particles were not the real problem. The real problem was the tendency of human beings to murder one another. And to work out why that kept happening was, a, a for me, a more powerful imperative. Reading Tolstoy was a big reason why I became an historian. Why on earth did the Russian people and the French people slaughter one another? That's really the central question of that book. So I've tried to understand the world better with that big question in the back of my mind. And that that's the thing that gets me out of bed in the morning. Uh, and at the same time, I've, I've tried, and I hope I've succeeded in some measure, to be a good son, uh, a good husband, and, and a good father, and a good friend. Because those are the things that, that really matter in the end. Because you're not going to get... Your, your gravestone doesn't have a bibliography on it. You, you'll not see many of those. Right. Uh, you know, it doesn't actually list your publications. Your H index yes, is, uh, doesn't usually fit. Well, that's the whole resume virtues versus uh, eulogy virtues that I think David Brooks and Rabbi Soloveitchik had spoken about. Adam one versus Adam two. I guess the uh, the 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 kind of thought that does give me some. Um, hope maybe to segue into our, our conversation about science fiction and maybe using what you just said. You, you've often, I mean, you, you, you mentioned this, this fact that, you know, this, this fascinating notion that human beings kill each other. And in my field, there's this obsession with finding alien life. I mean, the James Webb Space Telescope was just uh, recently launched and is returning spectacular images recently this, when we're recording this in late summer. Um, they detected uh, the signature of carbon dioxide on an exoplanet called, with, with the winsome name uh, WASP-36b, I think it's called. Uh, I was going to call my third son that, that name, but I didn't. Uh, anyway, uh, the, uh, but the, the hope that we're going to find extraterrestrial life and that somehow it's going to be benevolent, not like, uh, you know, the three-body problem that you quote from so deliciously and delightfully. And, and I did have the honor of meeting Shinjin Liu when he came. Oh, to you did? Diego, uh, just before the pandemic, actually, uh, a phenomenal intellect and writer. Uh, but, uh, but you know, the assumption is that even if they're not benevolent, at least there's life that will give us some sort of meaning and intensity. And I've said this, I said this in Lex Friedman's podcast when I was on a few months back. I said, I don't think anything will happen. And I actually have a proof for that because in 1996, Bill Clinton stood on the White House lawn and said, we found material from Mars that seems to indicate byproducts of respiration uh, from Martian meteor microbes. And, and people went out in you know, Bosnia, you know, Herzegovina war that you described. That's kept going, uh, just as you described in Doom. Yeah. Um, I don't think a damn thing would change if we discovered life on another planet tomorrow. Uh, maybe it would change for a week or two. What, what do you think about the prospects for the impact on, on history of a discovery such as uh, the credible existence, not of just technological life, just of life in general in the universe outside of Earth? Well, if it were to be discovered, I'd be terrified because <laughs> I think Liu Cixin is onto something uh, with his uh, his theory of cosmic sociology, which is in the second volume of the the trilogy, uh, the, uh, the the Dark Forest. I, I, the argument there, for those who don't know the book, is that if we if one does discover intelligent life, one should immediately seek to destroy it before it destroys 
you and even if you're technologically ahead of it now there's no guarantee that it won't overtake you at some future date it, it's a, an extraordinarily brilliant insight maybe it's just an insight into the way the modern Chinese mind works but the idea that 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 new life would be benign is one that we must definitely resist it seems to me much more probable that it would either intentionally or unintentionally be very bad for us. Uh, the, the second thing I'd say is that if it were to turn out to be uh, uh, good or appear good in the first uh, instance, there's plenty of science fiction that tells you it'll turn out to be bad later. So be, be very afraid, even if they seem nice, maybe be especially afraid. Uh, but you're right, whatever we discovered would not radically alter our ways of behavior. And Li Sushin makes that point too. Once it's clear that the Trisolarans are going to invade Earth, they have collaborators uh, amongst radical environmentalists and nihilists who actually think humanity uh, should be eradicated. Uh, so we wouldn't all come together uh, in the face of a common threat any more than we did in the face of SARS-CoV-2 stroke COVID-19. Uh, I mean, in fact, what's fascinating about the way we behave as a species is that we can keep our old feuds going, even in the face of a common enemy. That, that makes the experiment, the natural experiments of 2020-21 really interesting. If anything, uh, we in fact became more divided, both domestically and internationally, than we, we had been in 2019. Doesn't make me terribly optimistic about that that scenario but i'm going to go with the very low probability view i can't help feeling that you know we've been looking at uh, for this for a while and like you i was excited by the exoplanet with with signs of of well not life but maybe the potential for life but i i i don't know i just suppose it's it's just can't help feeling that you know, here I am, 58, and I'm sure I was thinking about this when I was a kid 50 years ago. Um, yeah, yeah. Like we, we Probability it. has to be pretty low at this point, even yeah. even though, I, I, yeah. I, I, I mean, tell me I'm wrong. Yeah, and and I think that there is a value to, you know, speculating, obviously, uh, you know, and what I do is, uh, uh, although I prefer actually science, uh, science fact, science nonfiction uh, to science fiction, uh, even though I am the associate director of the Arthur C. Clarke Center for Human Imagination. We'll get to him in a bit. But there's uh, something of a podcaster's trifecta lately, you know, which uh, I don't know if you're familiar with, but Aliens, which we covered, um, the simulation hypothesis, uh, which is which is typically I, I had on Nick Bostrom recently. Uh, but I want to skip ahead because you're so knowledgeable about uh, so many different topics. But the third in the trifecta is, of course, Bitcoin. Uh, and you, uh, uh, of course, are known for uh, The Ascent of Money, this phenomenal award-winning um, uh, series that you did back a uh, decade plus ago. I can't believe how long ago it was. It seems like it was just yesterday. You haven't aged appreciably, uh, whatever you're taking. I want to get a, a dose of that, Neil. But um, you did your thesis on hyperinflation in the 1920s in Germany. And I wonder, like, do you see echoes of, of both the dangers of, of, of hyperinflation rearing its head around the world right now? Uh, or do you see the benefit for something like a Bitcoin-like object to 
to you know prevent such such rampant uh, uh, hyperinflation scenarios that you uh, are so uh, well studied in. What what are your thoughts now on Bitcoin? I I haven't read much. Um, I mean, not to say that's just a lack of my scholarship. I, I have I read in late 2020 about uh, some of your thoughts on it. But what what are your thoughts? Uh, recent thoughts about Bitcoin? Well, I updated the ascent of money uh, in 2018 on its 10th anniversary and published a couple of new chapters in that new edition, one of which was about cryptocurrency. And in the course of writing that, I changed my mind. Mm. Prior to then, prior to 2017, I'd been pretty much a skeptic in the standard way that uh, economists tend to be. Uh, and ignored my then teenage son when he had urged me to buy Bitcoin at 300 bucks. And then as he got older and I got wiser uh, and he was graduating from high school, I said, why don't you come out to Stanford and work here for a bit and help me understand this? So we did a little bit of collaboration, Lachlan and I. And I came around to a, a, a view that, that's a little idiosyncratic, but let me let me run this past you. As a financial historian, I think I, I take a different view from economists of how these things work. Economists really don't want lots of changes in the institutional infrastructure of the economy because they, they, they want to take that for granted and focus on, uh, on other things, uh, on movements of, of income and, and, and employment. They're not, they're not even that interested in money anymore. Right. I'm interested in the way financial institutions change over time. And they change a lot, and they change in a very evolutionary way. And it became clear to me that we were probably living through a financial revolution propelled by the internet. And it was highly unlikely that we would continue to have the financial methods of payment that predated the internet for very much longer it can't be rational for us to be typing credit card numbers into random websites to pay for stuff. So point one, the financial system is bound to evolve uh, and to evolve to produce payments that are more naturally native to the internet. Point number two, you can do things that you couldn't do before with the advent of blockchain. And the idea of having a peer-to-peer -peer system of payment that doesn't require third-party verification of any kind is it's an old idea, but it's now a, a possible idea. Third point, if you've come up with this novel technology, all that really matters is adoption. Uh, that's the key to the spread of a technology. Does it get adopted uh, on a sufficient scale? And I think the answer to that is clearly yes. It already has been adopted on a pretty large scale, big enough, I think, to be pretty hard to kill in the case of, of Bitcoin. And I think it has the potential to get even larger. So in 2018, I made the following observation. If every millionaire in the world had 0.2% uh, of uh, his or her wealth in Bitcoin, the price would be, I'm not going to do this from memory, something like 17,000. And if it went to 1%, then the price would be more like 70,000. And that's the range that one should probably think about in the near term. And that's kind of the range within which Bitcoin has fluctuated over the past couple of years. And my sense is that we're now in one of those lulls during which it will be decided, partly by legislation and regulation, how much adoption there is 
in the next phase. And that's that's the that's the uncertainty at the moment. And I think the same applies more generally to decentralized finance. It it applies uh, to all those things that are being built on top of, of of Ethereum. I'm broadly an optimist about this because I don't see the status quo as defensible. Our 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 bank dominated, fiat dominated system is too defective in too many ways to survive. But it's not yet certain to me that it will be replaced by a blockchain based system of finance when centralized AI platforms of the sort that evolved in China might just be more convenient and, uh, and easier and cheaper to run. So that that seems like the real uncertainty, which of the these two forms, decentralized or centralized, ultimately prevails. But the old systems, the legacy systems dying. Last thing I'll say, which I think is already something I've said, but the, the last, last thing I'll say is that, of course, there's going to be hyperinflation in Argentina uh, and a bunch of other countries uh, that are in the process of, of blowing up their currencies in a familiar way. There won't be hyperinflation in the United States. Uh, in fact, we're sort of barely going to make it into double-digit inflation the way things are going. Uh, you'll get double-digit inflation in the UK and elsewhere in Europe, but that's more, I think, a result of supply disruption on the energy side than of monetary policy. But the range of inflation is much more, I think, 1970s uh, than most people yet realize, because if you're young enough that you don't remember the 1970s, then you can't easily imagine how we could suddenly have got here after 20 years of 2% or less than 2% inflation. But the point of financial history is that it tells you that's what happens, and there was nothing natural about below 2% inflation. It's just that I don't think inflation is the reason for cryptocurrency. Hmm. And it was always puzzling to me that the people who were promoting Bitcoin promoted it as a solution to the problem of inflation because of the fixed supply or that was the reasoning but you know gold hasn't really been a great hedge against inflation in in most of of history so i mean if you're if your argument is hey this is just as good as gold this is digital gold then the reason for selling it isn't really that it's a hedge against inflation bitcoin's a hedge against expropriation uh, as gold generally has been it's just it's just a form of of holding your your wealth that is quite hard for governments to to confiscate that's why crypto is popular in places with poor rule of law and and governments that incline towards confiscation the idea that it was a solution to an inflation problem was weird particularly in 2008 when satoshi's paper appeared when Inflation definitely wasn't the problem. Uh, so I think there's a slight non sequitur in a lot of the thinking that goes on about this, just in the same way that in economists, when they say, oh, well, it's not a store of value and it's not a unit of account, blah, 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 they're missing the point. What people are interested in is not textbook definitions of money. Right. What they're interested in is how can I make payments with the lowest possible transaction cost and inconvenience? And that will be the question the answer to that question will determine what emerges as the dominant payment system. Yeah, I mean, I see it also, you know, depressingly, it doesn't seem like if it only got 1% adoption of millionaires uh, globally, it doesn't seem like it could ever have an effect on inflation, uh, almost by definition, as a ballast, counterweight, what have you. 
and I've also seen it, you know, with the with the shutdowns and the, and I do want to get to I, I don't know how much more time you have left. Please feel free to interrupt. We can we can uh, cut short any any of these long. I don't questions. get conversations like this every day, Brian. This is a pleasure. OK, it's a, my pleasure. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm convinced more than yours. But but I want to say with the with the with the fact that, um, you know, there there was during the, the recent, you know, Canadian tr uh, trucker strike where you know, it was uh, Coinbase was forced to close and, uh, you know, doing operations and and there's all sorts of payment systems that can be manipulated. It doesn't seem like it is decentralized, really, Bitcoin itself. And I feel like there is one network that, you know, which which you've written about the powers of network effects. And, and, and I want to get into that as well. But but thinking about networks, I mean, unless you have a benevolent dictatorship or you have truly decentralized, I don't think as you say, that we'll ever be able to truly claim that it's that it's you know free from from central domination. And I want to I want to maybe segue. You you did mention briefly you know these kind of world organizations that play a role, perhaps not as menacing in 2020 as they are now. The WEF, Davos, uh, and so forth. Uh, are are these entities you know the boogeymen that that at least on the conservative right, people are making them out to feel. Uh, you know, we hear a lot about Davos and 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 uh, Klaus Schwab and and so forth. Are they really capable of 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 impacting or causing any effect on uh, daily lives here in America? Let's just be you know venally uh, uh, America centric. <laughs> um, can these boogeymen really affect us in any way? I mean, are are they just kind of uh, chimerical? Uh, uh, meant to enrage and and just polarize further so that there's engagement to sell more ads on uh, on on Twitter. Well, the United States has vastly more power than any of those public or non-public uh, institutions that you mentioned, and it's kind of comical for Americans who enjoy the protection of one of the most powerful empires in history uh, to be worried about a conference that's held annually in a Swiss ski resort. Come on. <laughs> where is Klaus Schwab's Navy? Uh, I, I can't remember where he keeps his ballistic missiles. It's all stupid. It's stupid because the reality is that organizations like the World Economic Forum or the Bilderberg Group uh, or the Trilateral Commission, I mean, I, I've attended meetings of all of these bodies. So, of course, I'm part of the conspiracy Cabal. globalists. Um, but, I mean, I'm here to, to, to report as somebody who's highly sympathetic to what we might call the populist constituency of middle America. I'm here to report that they actually are embarrassingly weak uh, and confused on, on the whole about what, what to do with the world, even if they had power. The World Economic Forum meeting of January 2020 was entirely dominated by a discussion of climate change. In its global risk report, which must have been prepared the previous year, the risk of a pandemic didn't appear at all. And so I ran around the conference center trying to persuade people that they should change the agenda to a pandemic because that was slightly faster moving than climate change. No takers. And uh, I was regarded as having slightly lost my my marbles when I emailed Schwab to say, by the way, there are five people listed in the participants' uh, booklet from Wuhan. Wuhan. <laughs> you probably need to warn everybody that this could be a super spreader event. So, no, I mean, there's there's much less there uh, that meets the eye. Now, in the book, The Square and the Tower, I, I try to argue that that doesn't mean they're insignificant because it 
I think it was quite important that Schwab built the World Economic Forum up as a, a network for promoting ideas about, particularly about free capital movement, international investment, let's call it globalization. I think that did spread the the word. I think it was important that Nelson Mandela went to Davos and was kind of persuaded to ditch socialist uh, goals from the African National Congress's manifesto. But it's interesting that he was persuaded not by Klaus Schwab, but, but actually by the Chinese people who were there. It's like, no, forget about socialism. That stuff doesn't work. Um, but no, I think these things matter, but they, they don't matter the way the conspiracy theorists think they matter. In the same way that the, the network of Jewish bankers, which I studied early in my career, the Rothschilds, the Warburgs, etc., that was a real thing. And there was a network there and it was important. It, it played a very big part in the history of, of 19th century uh, industrialization and, uh, and economic development. But in terms of political power, it was much weaker than all the conspiracy theorists of that time claimed. And that was made very clear when uh, anti-Semitic politicians like Hitler came to power and very easily were able to destroy yeah. the network of Jewish finance. So I, you know, my sense is that these things are important to study, but if you're going to study them, you've got to keep a sense of perspective. And that's what the conspiracy theorists don't bother doing. A, because they're not really studying them at all. They're really just projecting collective neuroses on fantasy networks, fantasy organizations yeah. that are much more powerful than they really are. That seems very akin to the, you know, ascription as you make very strongly in, the, in Doom uh, to want to place blame on the foot of the most powerful leaders in, in the world. And, you know, as, as you make very clear throughout many of these, you know, disasters, quote unquote, uh, uh, they have almost no power. And, and in fact, they serve to undermine their own causes in, in many effects. I want to turn now to an ultimate source of power, and that's uh, tenure and academia. Uh, you and I are members of an august field. I always say, you know, how do you know that being a professor is the is the best job in the known universe, uh, and it's and it's because uh, it is the only profession that Neil Armstrong, another Neil, took up once he came off of the moon. He became a professor in Ohio. Uh, I don't know if you knew that, but uh, that was the only thing that could top going to the moon. Literally, how has being a professor impacted you? What what part of your identity, whether it was at Harvard or your work as a fellow and a scholar at the Hoover Institution? What, what is being a, a scholar, a professor, what does that mean to you as, as, as a man, as an identity, as a father? How does it impact you? And what do you see as the future of our profession? It's, it's over a thousand years old and it really hasn't changed that much. What do you see of the future of what we do? I became an academic uh, because I value intellectual freedom above everything else. And I wanted to be able to uh, pursue my ideas uh, wherever I wanted, without a boss. I have a deep horror of being bossed around. Mm. And that's academia, because academic institutions in most of history are remarkably decentralized in the sense that governance is not really that centrally organized. University presidents and their British equivalents, vice chancellors, are kind of as powerful as the queen is powerful in the, in the British constitution. In truth, power in Britain is in, in the House of Commons. Power in most universities is with the tenured faculty. 
And that meant that the Republic of Letters seemed very appealing to me. If I could become a fellow of an Oxford or Cambridge college, then the world would leave me alone in an agreeable study lined with books. Uh, I would be able to write those books myself, read the books of others, teach my thinking to uh, bright young people. And that teaching part was half the year. I mean, three eight-week terms. I didn't really even have to ask about the money because as far as I was concerned, the salary didn't need to be that high. I was getting the office space and half the year to write books. And if I couldn't make money from doing that, then I made a big mistake to begin with. So that was straightforward. Nothing else that was on offer in 1985 when I graduated compared uh, with with that. Uh, I'd have hated uh, finance. Uh, I considered journalism. I'm glad I decided to do that as a hobby. There weren't really any other things that I thought much about. The problem has turned out to be, and I never saw this coming in the 80s, 90s, or even into the 2000s, that that universities have ceased to be places that prioritize free inquiry. Quite the reverse. They have become, rather as they probably were in the Middle Ages, places that prioritize orthodoxy and conformism. And they now exist to constrain thought and speech in ways that are deeply repellent to me and I think deeply dangerous for our society. So I've been forced to rethink my relationship to academia. I I ended up ceasing to be a professor. I gave up my chair at Harvard and came to the Hoover Institution six years ago. I'm senior fellow at the Hoover Institution. I don't teach at Stanford, partly because they don't want me to teach uh, and partly because it suits me. And now I'm involved in creating a new university in Texas, the University of Austin, in the belief that we have to create new institutions to model free inquiry, because the old institutions simply won't repair themselves, certainly not in in my lifetime. So that's, mm-hmm. that's been my journey. Mm-hmm. And when we think about, you know, the vulnerability to disaster collapse, it strikes me that the university is rather cavalier, at least on you know, the existential threats that they might have. I, I recently uh, did a project with some friends, uh, physicist, uh, well-known uh, Carlo Rovelli, uh, as well as uh, the leader of the Large Hadron Collider, that CERN, Fabio Legionati, and, and other people, where we took Galileo's, uh, I'm known for my finger puppets, you know, I hope you'll forgive me. This, <laughs> well, we'll get one of you someday, but this is Galileo. And we took, I took his dialogue on the two chief world systems, which was the explication of Copernicanism uh, that got him ultimately imprisoned. Although it's not such a bad prison if you've ever gone to uh, Archetri. It's, it's actually a place that Bernie Madoff would have gladly traded places with uh, old Galileo. Uh, but, but the point being, we took all of his words, we had them digitized. And with modern artificial intelligence engines like GPT-3 and others, we could actually you know, have a simulacrum of, of Galileo that we could prompt and ask questions of. I think I'm a good professor. You know, I, I think I'm uh, above average, although most people think they're above average. But I don't think I can compare to, to, to him or to, you know, Herr Einstein or, or James Clerk Maxwell. Um, so what, uh, what advances will uh, University of Austin, Texas, what will they make use of to differentiate? Or will it be, you know, uh, just, just 
faculty that are maybe estranged in some way. My friend Peter Bogazian, who's been on the show, as well as uh, Lex Friedman, who I know, I, I know they're involved. But what innovations, if any, are they going to do, or is it going to be, you know, uh, a, a sage scraping a piece of rock on another piece of rock, uh, you know, just like they did in Bologna in uh, 1080? Well, you're right that universities have been around in that form for a millennium, and it's time to rethink the model. Um, and we will do that. That's part of the fun of, of an enterprise like this. Sure, we'll, we'll attract uh, some kreadenka, as the Germans say, some people who think against the current, and that's crucial. And, 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 and it wouldn't be worth doing if there weren't people like Peter, who clearly need new, a new home where they can do their, do their work freely. Yeah. I think there are a bunch of innovations that that we have in mind. One is to rethink the whole structure. Departments are silos. And within those silos, intellectual corruption can run amok. So we are thinking more in terms of interdisciplinary centers that will have finite lives. In, our, in other words, it'll be a shape-shifting institution where we'll be trying to avoid the, the, the pathologies of the, the modern university uh, in which there are sovereign departments that engage in, in self-perpetuation of bad ideas. Uh, I think the second thing that, that's exciting to me is that we want to end this notion of the campus as something divorced from reality, but accentuate and emphasize the, the relationship between study and uh, subsequent activity. Let's stop pretending that everybody's going to be a professor. That's not the case. Uh, it's not the case for the people doing PhDs. It's certainly not the case for the people doing undergraduate studies. Let's consider the very real uh, point that they have to play roles when they graduate. And let's begin that process. So I think the University of Austin will have a lot of practice and a lot of interaction, particularly in junior and senior years, with what we called the real world. Uh, so I think that's a second important way in which uh, in which the institution will will be will be different. The third thing that I I think we need to be quite uh, open about is that we want to pursue the meritocratic ideal above all uh, other uh, criteria for selection in the same way that uh, the military does. I wonder where the intellectual Navy SEALs are today. I'd like to see the intellectual Green Berets. Why is the military so comfortable with its elitism and academia so uncomfortable with it to the point that it is now throwing out uh, conventional ways of selection for uh, academic merits? Uh, so we are going to be, I think, self-confidently interested in intellectual elitism and that's going to seem pretty refreshing mm. compared with a few other institutions that i could mention today yeah, yeah i think they should we should welcome the competition I, i've uh, expressed my my optimism that it succeeds i think competition is not just good for you know better phones but it's good for education and uh, now with the with the advent of uh, now monetizing all the uh, privately held debt <laughs> uh, for college <laughs> students, I think uh, there's going to be less of an incentive for traditional universities to rein in cost and cut administration Sorry. and bureaucracy, et cetera. Well, uh, you know, we've reached the the end of the regularly scheduled portion of the podcast, but if you'll indulge me and in slightly more forbearance for a few more minutes, I have 
three existential questions that okay. I'd love to ask you to look into your crystal ball and also to uh, look back uh, as, as if through a telescope, uh, if you wouldn't mind answering what I call the thrilling three or the fantastic four, we will now play the final uh, three existential questions. Which begins, uh, and they're all in some way related to Sir Arthur C. Clarke. The first one has to do with his famous quote, uh, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic, which we open the podcast with. If you uh, ever heard that voice, it's not my voice, it's, it's him. And actually, I don't know if you knew this, Neil, but, but the word podcast comes from Sir Arthur C. Clarke. I don't know that. Uh, because 2001, uh, of course, uh, Dave asked Hal to open the pod bay doors. Uh, and the pod is, uh, is, is what the iPod was named after uh, by uh, Tony Fidel or Steve Jobs. I can't remember which one. And of course, podcasts are played on iPods, but not, no longer. So the iPod doesn't even exist. Anyway, that's the connection to Arthur C. Clarke. I think it's cute. Um, I want to ask you, what if you had to take any one object or learning or wisdom from all of humanity with your vast swath of history that you're aware of what would you put on a monolith like in 2001 those those menacing objects that are maybe like time capsules from an ancient civilization what would you want to brag about or or just to say that humanity had discovered through its course of existence for a future civilization to find maybe in a billion years Well, I've already done the the Latin inscription that sums up the, the human condition, so I can't I can't reuse that. Uh, I mean, the key insight from my study is that technology changes the nature of of life, but not human nature. And the fact that we can understand Thucydides and Shakespeare relatively easily, tells us that human nature has changed staggeringly little over 2000 years. And that tells us the limits of technology. You can, you can change the way that we communicate. Clearly in the 18th century, you and I would have written letters to one another and read one another's publications, uh, but we wouldn't really have interacted that differently. We're still engaged in a kind of subtle duel of minds trying to work out which of us is smarter it's probably you no. um but that that's the key point that people forget we're not that plastic mm -hmm. mm. yeah that is true and i think we're underestimating i always say we have to have a little bit of swagger but you have to be humble at the same time as uh as uh, Gandhi said, we should always keep in mind that dust could crush us and not that uh, we always crush the dust. And it's interesting because Feynman, uh, of course, answered that question. And you refer to Feynman in the middle of the book and the Challenger affair, but also for his kind of Mr. Smith goes to Washington, all shucks type of attitude. And, and he said it was the atomic hypothesis that you know everything is made of atoms whirling around each other. And I, I feel like, although as a physicist, I have to support, you know, I'm duty bound to support anything Feynman says or does. Uh, but at the same time, uh, I still feel like that fails to grasp the sum total of what makes humanity as a whole right. so amazing, so precious, so fragile, and so worthy of preservation. And, and yet, I, I, as I said, I, you know, when, when I hear, oh, it's going to change everything when we discover extra, 
I'm like, you can go down to the Pacific Ocean a couple miles from where you or I are at different parts of the Pacific Ocean, scoop up life, and it doesn't change the fact that we're still, you know, polluting the earth and doing all sorts of devastation, let alone all the genocides of the last hundred years uh, should disabuse people. Okay, next question is another quote from Sir Arthur. Uh, he said, when a distinguished but elderly scientist states that something is possible, they are almost certainly right. But when they say something is impossible, they are very probably wrong. I want to say, ask you, Neil, what um, have you changed your mind on? Uh, and you're not a scientist, but let's say as a, I'll change scientist to scholar. Uh, what did you once think was impossible uh, and are, are now wrong about? Or, or what, what do you think that most people have wrong? Uh, or just in general, what have you changed your mind about? When have you been wrong? Most recently, well, most people think time travel is impossible, but it's not mm. because that's what historians do. Mm. You, I'm engaged in this activity at the moment with an enormous imaginative effort. I travel every day back to the late 1960s and early 1970s. I'm writing a biography of Henry Kissinger. And I reenact in my head what was going on, what I can infer from the surviving documents was happening. And in that process of imaginative reconstitution, I'm engaged in time travel. I didn't believe this was possible until my Ukrainian friend, Viktor Pinchuk, said, as he opened a bottle of, I think it was a 1991 or 92 Bordeaux, he said, the only kind of time travel that's possible is this that we, we can travel in time with wine. And, and that was the, the epiphany. I suddenly realized, well, of course, of course, just as you can taste the wine that was made uh, in 1991, you can, in fact, re reconstruct with your imaginative uh, power what, what, in fact, was going on then, and even further back. So time travel is possible. It's what I do. I am a time lord. Talking <laughs> science fiction, Doctor Who was my favorite character, still is in all... Of television it's the only television series that is in fact worth watching forget game of thrones it's history for morons uh doctor who is a time lord and so am i oh, very good um well I, I i often have said it the other way around that that time travel into the future is possible um it's called your children and it could be your biological children it could be your ideological children of which you and you have many many millions around the world but the the problem is that we're greedy because we want to take our bodies and travel to the future but no you can teleport your values very deeply into the future and uh maybe in a part two we'll we'll, we'll get a chance to explore more about uh a fatherhood i i can't resist asking you and and maybe this is more appropriate for ian but but uh but you've you've suffered a fair share of, of controversy and 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 um you know there's an italian expression the, the higher you fly the more people shoot at you or things like that but i want to hearken to to george orwell not 1984 which you talk about in doom but but Animal Farm, where, you know, uh, ben the pig, I forget the pig's name, but the, the, um, the pig says to Benjamin the donkey, you know, you're so resplendent, you've got the delightful tail, um, uh, you're so lucky, I just have this short, curly and useless thing, it doesn't do anything. And Benjamin the donkey says, yeah, the good Lord gave me the tail to swat away the flies, but I'd rather not have the flies and not need the tail. Uh, tell me, you know, in your in your life, you've, you've gotten so much, you've had so much courage, you've done so many things. You also get a lot of criticism. Would you trade the tail for the lack of flies or, or are you comfortable with this, this uh, 
this trade that that you've made uh, in your life to be, you know, at the cutting edge, to be courageous, but also to take your fair share of criticism? Well, to vary the analogy, uh, you know, you're over the target when the flack is incoming. And my goal in setting out to write history, to understand the way the world works better was not to confirm what others already thought, but to challenge it. There'd be no point writing books that simply replicated what previous authors had said. So by uh, design, I set out to be disagreeable. And if there were no flies buzzing around me, uh, if there were no incoming flag, I would be failing. My old mentor Norman Stone once said to me, I wear my enemies like medals. And the thing about that is that's just the right way to think about it. So if any of my enemies are listening, uh, buzz on, just buzz on flies. <laughs> well, Neil, this has been uh, such a delight uh, sharing your wit, your wisdom, uh, this phenomenal book. Do you know, I can't wait for your, uh, your, your upcoming book, uh, which, which uh, um, you mentioned is about Kissinger. Um, consume everything you do and uh, uh, keep up the wonderful work. And thank you so much for coming on the Into the Impossible podcast. Thank you, Brian. Thanks to a scientist for humoring a mere historian. It's been a pleasure. <laughs> thank you. Well, that's a wrap on this episode with Neil Ferguson about doom. Wasn't that fun and uplifting? I actually got a lot out of this episode, including really talking to somebody who balances a phenomenal output, a dozen books or so, a documentary series about money, um, and his new project that he's working on, about Henry Kissinger, controversial figure, no, but but important historical sweep of of, uh, of humanity. So I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. As again, I only ask you to do really two things: subscribe to my mailing list, BrianKeating.com/list, so I can keep you apprised of all the cool happenings in science, and technology on the podcast and the YouTube channel, just Dr. Brian Keating. Uh, and uh, leave a rating. Our number of reviews uh, are, are just so helpful and keep me in the forefront so I can continue to get great guests like Neil and, um, and other uh, just wonderful intellects and keep this project going, the Into the Impossible Project. It's now over two years we've been doing it and I couldn't do it without you. So thank you and I implore you to have a magical rest of your week. Thanks everybody. Thanks everybody.